0: All right, everyone, uh, we'll get, uh, everyone ready? Some of you may have heard this talk before, but I uh, thought it was uh, an interesting one for the group here. Uh, a lot of you probably know uh, Joe. Um, Joe is the first EMIM grad at Maryland. So he, he created the, uh, what is now, Uh, a long line of uh, individuals interested in this topic, myself being included. Um, Joe is back for the year on and off, um, finishing up uh, all the necessary uh, sort of things on the checklist to become finally board certified in critical care. It's been a long, arduous road. Maybe I am, which is
1: funny.
0: but it's uh it is our absolute pleasure to have him here because uh just uh you know having a senior faculty member basically be a fellow is an odd but welcome addition
1: thanks, <laughs> thanks Nirav for the invitation to be here it's nice to see some of my old not all but a lot of my old i shouldn't say old my former faculty members I'll say old faculty members so this is a topic i got interested in because i've I guess I have to stand here by the mic, that's okay. Anyway, after a while, you know, you give, uh, you're give you asked to give talks on you know, updates and ACLS or post-resuscitation care and you know, 2010 new guidelines and you start thinking, well, geez, you know, they, they change. Why did they change from the, from the last set? And if you start looking back and looking back, sometimes you start getting interested in the history of why we were doing things the way we were in the first place, and so that led me to this topic. So, I, I I talk about resuscitation in the ABCD way that we currently do it. I I spend a little time talking about the development of the ICU and then a little bit about how EMS systems involved also because it all is uh, wound together to make our current system that we have. And so Silverman, in fact, Silverman anniversary of Shakespeare's birth and. this is one of the early references in literature of any type about what we would consider to be resuscitation and that they understood that there was a difference between being nearly dead and actually dead so yeah exactly that and then the princess bride you know the really dead so there's Pericles saying uh, I heard of an Egyptian who had lying dead for nine hours who was by good appliances recovered and good appliances would be their term for a physician had done something to them right they had put on maybe a plaster of some sort or had done some good uh, good potion of you know, medicinal herbs, but something was done and the person had recovered. So besides the Bible, that's probably the only references to someone who had recovered from being dead or nearly dead. So there is, as I said, there is clearly that they recognized this very dead to this almost dead. They didn't understand that the physiology was of being unconscious or, in um, severe states of shock, so to them, it looked like maybe this person was was asleep. And so some of the early forms of re- of resuscitation involved um, flagellation, you know, whipping the person, thro- dousing them with cold water, fumigating them with tobacco smokes. And so he did they did have the idea that that tobacco was a stimulant of some sort. So whether that was, um, fumigation through the oral route or through the rectal route, and most people, I think, have seen some of these early devices. This is a rectal smoke enema fumigation device to give the person tobacco smoke via enema, which is where that term comes from.
2: <laughs> right, why right?
1: Why not? Yeah. So the remnants to this day, to this day, you know, that the the ammonia inhalant which we all know now is used to see if someone is actually, you know, malingering or not. But from earlier times, it was thought that that was a potent inhalant, that it would somehow stimulate the person and wake them up from their state of unconsciousness. And then the precordial thump is kind of a remnant you know it was used for hundreds and hundreds of years to say would that wake that person up and then since probably several hundred years ago maybe four to five hundred years ago Chinese physicians realized that a precordial thump actually could disable or or kill somebody which you would be discovering what we know now is commotio cordis that uh, that not a devastating crushing blow like that would kill from from chest injury but a th- sudden smack to the chest could actually make someone stunned and then drop over and so then they realized that maybe a counter blow of some sort and then it was over hundred years ago that for stoke adams that cardiologist realized that you could pace a heart by actually hitting them on the chest and every hit would cause a contraction now that was not cpr but it was a similar version realizing that thumping the chest caused electrical shock so precordial thump persists now for other reasons and the ammonia inhalant we still use but not for what obviously it was intended for by earlier times. So some of the early resuscitation techniques that existed from ancient time that still exists now really are these techniques for sudden drowning events where people would have accepted that person was normal, they were submerged, so the problem must be too much quote water in their body so hanging them upside down Rolling them across a barrel or trotting them on a horse uh, was probably not very effective but you can imagine that the barrel rolling or the horse trotting would deliver some degree of chest abdominal compressions which may have been delivering some breaths and potentially some compressions. So. There isn't any data to say how often this was effective, but you would have to imagine that every once in a while, someone that had been drowned was placed on a horse, trotted around, and survived. If not, if it never worked, it wouldn't have persisted. But the fact that anecdotally someone said, yes, someone came back, then it would have persisted. And um, in modern day, but in uh, less developed areas, there's still... Uh, to this day, when people have drowned, if there isn't a nine one one you can call and have someone bring oxygen and bag valve mask, they still often will do the inversion and the barrel rolling and even some of the earlier stuff like smoke fumigation. So these are woodcuts again from the from over four hundred years ago from Japanese martial arts books, and they realized that practicing martial arts, someone could get either rendered unconscious from a blow or, or from a strangulation technique and so it was thought that you had to learn resuscitation techniques if you were going to be a true master you couldn't run a school system and be teaching students and have someone Killed within your tutelage, it was actually considered to be probably bad advertising you wouldn 't want to get a lot of students coming to that, so it was considered that you would be a master only if you had learned not only disabling techniques but resuscitation techniques and you can imagine some of these the, the drawings showing some type of chest compression or you know chest thoracic expansion that may be drawing some air air within. So, now moving into or several hundred years ago, the first organized efforts by a, uh, a state, a government, which we would consider today to be a... a like our public health campaign would be you know for quote hands-only cpr or recognizing stroke symptoms would have been in amsterdam this group the society for recovery of, the, of drowned persons made it actually a law that if someone had gone into a, a lake a river a body of water then by law you must pull that person out and begin trying to do these resuscitation techniques there were so many people that then were, were dying prior to this and nothing would be done so warming, elevating the feet above the head, abdominal pressures to clear aspirated water, that actually would still be what would be pretty much recognized and done, done today. The abdominal pressure is only modern day is only if you can't get the person with either spontaneous respirations or ventilate them with mouth. If you believe there actually is air blocking, excuse me, water blocking the airway, then you're still recommended to do abdominal pressure. Respiration via bellows. So that is actually an artificial breathing technique. So this, this predates what by several hundreds of years before American Heart started recommending actually a version of, of, of rescue breathing. So this was much before that. And then the tickling of the throat and the fumigation of smoke, that still goes back to their belief that the person was, quote, asleep, or or somehow if you could stimulate them enough, you could wake them up. But the first four would actually be considered to be acceptable techniques in modern day. So that was, that was on the continent, and then the British who all always were in competition and always wanted to feel like they were advanced, and this was shortly there later. Here is a, what would be a monograph you know, uh, by a physician, a single treatise, essays on the recovery of the apparently dead, also would give recommendations for drownings and or um, trauma, so very similar. And then the recommendations of the London Royal Humane Society, 1865, so take to the nearest house, dry and warm, so if it was from a drowning or from a trauma that would make sense, clear the nose and mouth, rub the skin briskly, the idea also that somehow you were stimulating them or war- warming them, again with the volatile salts for the stimulating effect. And then this is probably the earliest report I've seen of, of a crowd control at a code. You know, admit no fewer, you know, no more persons in the room that's absolutely necessary. So when I talk about this from time to time, I ask people, I say, hey, are you surprised that this is the recommendations in London? It says take to the nearest house. It doesn't say take to the hospital. It says take to the nearest house. And so 1865, what other big events in the world happened that, that same year was Abraham Lincoln was, was shot, right? And... As the president of the U.S., he wasn't taken to, you know, the Washington Naval Hospital. He wasn't taken to G.W. Where was he taken to? His house. It wasn't his house. He was taken actually to an, uh, an apartment that it was across the street from Ford's Theater, where he was killed, where he was shot, and eventually, eventually died. So the president of the U.S. wasn't transported to a hospital. So we forget that there just wasn't a way to transport people, and there wasn't really places to take them to. Now, there were several physicians in the audience when Lincoln got shot, and some of them actually wrote wrote books about it, wrote stories about it, and so he was attended very quickly by physicians, but what they did was also relatively rudimentary. One of them actually ex- basically probed his bullet wound and the thought is is that actually he probed that he dislodged a clot and some brain tissue and probably that had him survive for several more hours because it did uh, during the report of that physician who was monitoring basically feeling pulse and respirations he apparently Lincoln apparently had, had stopped breathing at one point and they could no longer palpate, and by doing that he probably kept them from fully herniating, he expressed some blood, he expanded some brain tissue out, and he actually lived for maybe another six or eight hours after that. But that's the most of the care that he got. He got warmed, he got covered, you know, and they stood by his bedside. From
2: well, the book, the, uh, the best seller several years ago about Garfield? I can't remember that's a wonderful book to read. It was kind of a testimony to bad medicine as a uh, he was reman- remanded to the White House where they set up a critical care bed in his room at the White House. and for months he was had his wounds probed by <coughs> bold and arrogant physicians who kept everyone else away and probably advanced his infections and you know, they eventually died dietic wounds. But it was all about probing the wound to find the bullet, you know, just like the western movies.
1: I, I get that bullet out of it. So for, the, for now the ABCD, a, so Vesalius, an and early anatomist, didn't understand the fact that you could make an incision in a trachea. He did this on, on animals, he did this on, on sheep even larger animals like horses and he would insert a reed into the trachea and he could show that they could breathe through the reed. So an early version of although well, spontaneous breathing but with an artificial airway. And Trendelenburg, is that the correct pronunciation? I've heard other older physicians correct, correct me when people will say Trendelenburg and they say no, it's Trendelenburg. But Trendelenburg first one invented a cuffed tracheostomy tube. And then another physician invented a cuffed in endotracheal tube, and then it was only afterwards that the laryngoscope was invented. So it always surprises people when they found out that, you no, know, obviously tracheostomy was the first way that we secured an airway, but then they were placing endotracheal tubes, but they were not using laryngoscopes. They were using direct visualization and then direct digital Manipulation of the, in the tracheal tube. So the, the the early woodcuts show the physician with the reflector headlamp, and you know, opening the patient's mouth with his hand and f- looking forward and placing the tube down beyond the epiglottis. So we then we get to the point where we had laryngoscope and cuffed in the tracheal tube. So this was a relatively early, um, compared to some of the other developments that we'll look at, of us actually saying for resuscitation, securing an airway
0: hadn't been precarious. I mean, kids, you had no mirror mustard blockers. You know, so I mean, how did doctors' fingers not get
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I I know. I, I wrote an editorial about digital intubation, but digital intubation is still a good technique to learn, but the absolute contraindication to it is always an awake patient. The person has to be deeply unresponsive for you to actually even attempt it, because even if the person's not volitional, there can be reflexes that the jaw actually will contract. And even if they're not forceful teeth coming together, but when your hand is down in there, yeah, you do not want any of the incisors.
2: There was a a guy at Franklin Square who still practices today when he was a fellow in gastroenterology at Bayview or City Hospital. And I used to work part-time in the emergency room there as well as work there. And uh, he always came up to the ICU and started his endoscopies with a bare hand inside the patient's mouth to push it open and and start pushing the endoscope down. And we we must have told him 50 times that he was an idiot for doing this. And until I walked into the emergency room to relieve somebody on an evening shift one night, and there was this familiar face (laughs) with a hand and a bowl of iodine. (laughs) No bite blocks, no glove. (laughs) But he's still practicing, so I guess he didn't catch (laughs) anything.
1: So for breathing, there were references all the way back to the Old Testament about mouth-to-mouth, and some of them were, were more, uh, a little more uh, spiritual, talking about more of the, you know, breathing the, the breath of life and so forth, but some were, were more literal, and it was recognized that Hebrew midwives used mouth-to-mouth when they delivered babies if they had come out actually cyanotic, uh, but that was not widely recognized by the med- by medical literature. So. Parcellus, who I also believe was, I think it was British also. Am I saying that correctly? Parcellus? Parcellus? I believe he was British. Oh, maybe, maybe from the rest of the content. I'm sorry, I forgot where he was actually from. It was the first one that talked about using a bellows, a, fi- a fire bellows in the nose or mouth to deliver respirations, which is why then we saw it in the, um, in some of the other recommendations from 100 or so years afterwards. So it was recognized that you could deliver air and there was a report, 1732, of, of mouth-to-mouth being used, and a, a coal miner who probably got uh, overwhelmed by a simple asphyxiant down in the coal mines was probably methane, so something that wasn't poisonous, but it just displaced the oxygen. He was unresponsive, they pulled him from the mine, and someone did some mouth-to-mouth breathing, this, this gentleman Tossack, and he reported that the person recovered. So that was, as far as we know, the earliest report of, of actual mouth-to-mouth breathing. Now I always joke when I give this talk to uh, other students and and residents and I say and then from then onwards we use use mouth-to-mouth breathing as our mode of resuscitation and a lot of times the crowd will nod their heads like yes we did and I said no of course we didn't it wasn't recognized you know this just an example of something that was done and reported in the literature but it does not necessarily mean that it's well recognized or embraced and penetrates into practice. So one reason why it may have disappeared and not come back is because of Steele and Lavoisier with their discovery of oxygen and the need for biologic systems to use oxygen. So once we knew of this component that was vital to the life of all living beings, we said, well, how could could you be breathing into them and giving them this, this oxygen, right? breath is, you know, your, your breath is, quote, devitalized. It doesn't have that good oxygen in it. So people went away from using mouth-to-mouth because, because of another scientific discovery that swayed them away from it. So, this is a woodcut showing. Then in, There was a time period where it was very, very fashionable for a physician to have his method of resuscitation, to name it right, he had an eponym and then he would go around and would lecture widely on the merits of his technique. And so this is a Sylvester method and you can see here it's either being done supine or prone and one person is lifting the arms up and then, this isn't a live picture, but he would be lifting it up and down with the abdominal chest compression and that was a, again, very widely accepted method of giving a person somehow it would be drawing air into them, right? Anybody remember the old, the old Three Stooges cartoons, right? In with the uh, good air, out with the bed, in with, right? Oh, remember this? Right, as, a, as they would put, you know, after one of them had gotten knocked on the head and rendered unconscious, the other two would be doing the crazy. So this is what they were parodying. There
2: that. was the arm lift method of resuscitation. That was in the Boy Scout manual.
1: Correct, right. and I've mentioned that, that the Boy Scouts were taught that, right? The arm, it was arm lift, and and chest abdominal compression. That,
2: that was called advanced life saving for
1: swimmers in the sixties. Exactly. So just an example of how something can continue on. Nineteen, Nineteen,
2: six, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 Thank you for that clarification.
1: <laughs> so here's two different two different reporting in the in the lay press. To the left is from University of California you know what that's not the correct image I'm sorry it should be there was a separate clipping I had on the right that was actually the British press. It was two different reports of two different groups of researchers and they were virtually doing the same thing. A seesaw with an oxygen concentrator and swinging the person back and forth. The British report, the person was flipped supine on the seesaw. But both of them had said, and this this was from actually post-World War II, that these were the modern day researchers looking for a way to save a patient with sudden death. And this was the height of science at that time. And I'm sorry, I must have taken another photo out. The photo to the right, that's Chicago firemen who again are practicing, this is another Howard Schafer method, another physician, and this was now the person is proned, there's an oxygen generator, oxygen concentrator on it by mask, and now this is this lumbar pressure. Now I don't know how they ever thought that would be drawing air into the person but that was a low back pressure. You I mean, these were Chicago firemen learning. So now closer to the modern time period. So uh, James Alam and Peter Safar were two anesthesia physicians and together they really moved us into the modern day of what we would think of as rescue breathing. So they developed uh, the fact that, that they recognized that a lot of unconscious patients had just a closed airway with something simple as as head, head tilt, chin lift, or, or jaw thrust. Opening the airway, a patient may actually have spontaneous respiratory attempts, and that may be enough. If opening the airway did not generate breaths, then the next thing would be some type of rescue breathing. So this was done at Baltimore City Hospital, which then became um, Francis Scott Key Hospital, which now is Hopkins Bayview, it's renamed itself along the way, and it's actually where I started. Started after I graduated from college, I went to graduate school, and I worked at Baltimore City Hospital for the chief of pathology there, and did research there while I was in graduate school at, at Johns Hopkins. So, over 25 years ago, I was there, and um, the history of it is is kind, of, kind of important. So, the photo shows Peter Safar, one of his residents. And this, excuse me, do I have a pointer here, Mike? Yeah, Yeah, this gentleman in between the two was the Baltimore City EMS director, what would that kind of call the fire chief of Baltimore City. So he was very interested in these experiments because again, he was very unsatisfied with the Howard Schaefer method, which is what his EMS gentleman would have been being taught what to do he knew that there had to be something better so when he heard about these experiments which were them paralyzing volunteer medical students and residents with QRA and then doing mouth-to-mouth or bagging them you know just doing a chin lift jaw thrust and like an anesthesia and then bagging them and they could keep them alive for an hour at a time he was pretty interested in it and so how did Yeah, you could never obviously do these, do these studies today, and I've told this before, is that the, Safar and Alam talked to each other about, you know, Safar knew about the anatomic of the airway because of being an anesthesiologist, but Alam tells the story of he was going into the hospital one day getting ready to start a shift, and a family was running in with obviously a limp child, it was probably about a three or four year old child, and the child was blue and limp, and as they ran into the hospital, Um, Alam grabbed the child and basically pinched the nose and started doing mouth-to-mouth breathing. And after a few breaths, the child's color started to become pinker again, started to have some spontaneous respirations, and then the child went up to the operating room, and I believe what they said that the case was, it was was diphtheria, and he had a pseudomembrane that was including his, his, his airway, and had a surgical airway, and the child did fine. So the rest of the staff said, what, what was that that you did? What, you know, there was no mouth-to-mouth breathing at that time. And, and what he said was is that he had been reading the Bible and had read about these Hebrew midwives doing mouth-to-mouth on, on blue infants. And so he was never taught it, he did, but he just knew that if he didn't do anything, if they did the standard stuff, which is, I guess, put the child in an oxygen tent or so forth, that the child would have been dead. So he did what he thought needed to be done, but saw the effects of it. So him speaking to Safar led then to Safar saying, well, we need to actually experiment on this mouth-to-mouth. he yeah. his own diphtheria that's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's a good question, whether he was well, I mean, already... Involved. He was already... a uh, vaccinated. I was gonna say, if he was already immune or vaccinated. So here's a historical photo and it even documents that resuscitation experiment volunteer volunteer Felix Steichen, the surgery resident who you know was working there under his attending, Peter Safaris, I don't know how much of a volunteer but there he was and again sitting in the chair is the is the Baltimore City EMS fire chief so he was very interested in what was happening there. So They published this in JAMA in 1958 and then American Red Cross endorsed it in 1960 as as rescue breathing or mouth-to-mouth. And then for the A and B and now the C, compressions, Harvey, who was a physiologist, knew knew that, you know, hearts of doves you could stimulate them, you could actually flick them, and you could actually make the hearts stop or start. So I knew that there was something about that, although clearly the, the ideas about all the circulation wasn't well known then. Cardiac massage open was done in dogs. External compressions in cats, these were by two European physicians. And then 1891, a German physician, Friedrich Mass, actually did successful external compressions of a human. So most of us, I think, are taught that open chest cardiac compressions were done first and only later did we figured out about external compressions. But external compressions reported successfully a patient survived in 1891. But again, was not widely appreciated. Um, and then only 10 years later was the first open cardiac massage reported in the literature. And then 1904, George Cryle, who was an American physician, documented the first case of external cardiac compressions. And he was a little bit of an innovator. He also wrote about using IV saline boluses for shock, using epinephrine, and he had some version that he had made of an external compression device for circulatory shock, which really would be like a modern-day mast trousers that basically help centralize um, circulation. And then I found this only later. This is John Hill who was a dentist and reported this in a dental journal and if you read the bold segments, you really couldn't come up with a better way to describe actually doing chest compressions. So dentists, it was was fraught with the complications during this time period of using ether and so it's very difficult to balance. Someone's anesthesia during ether, but the person became more deep than they wanted. Probably became apneic, had a respiratory led to cardiac arrest. Patient got chest compressions and survived. So this was probably a hundred years before the American literature talks about using actually external cardiac compressions and CPR and so I often have to correct people when they say oh we've just passed the you know 50th anniversary of CPR and I'm like well you're off by a hundred years actually the medical literature reporting of CPR was much much before that so now these are the gentlemen that get credited for it these are the these are the Christopher Columbus's of external just compressions, right? They rediscovered it, right? I like to use that analogy because it's hard to discover a continent that had twenty million people living on it, right? North America, by most estimates, had twenty million people living on it, but Columbus discovered it. You know, it's like when people say, "Hey, I I discovered this great restaurant," and you're like, "Yeah, it's been there for ten years." You know, just because you went there for the first time doesn't mean that you discovered it. So. These three were two engineers and one, one resident physician, a surgeon in training at Hopkins, and they were actually working initially on external defibrillation. The two engineers were supported by actually, by the power company to do research. They had a grant from, I don't remember if it was just locally or by a national power company, and why was the power company interested in defibrillation? No, because their workers were, linemen were getting electrocuted. And they needed a way to say, hey, how do we save these people from just dying when they was pretty much, either assumed or known that they were dying from, from particular fibrillations. They were looking for a way to say, we have to have some kind of device that we can defibrillate these guys. So two of them were engineers, and the young one was actually a, a resident surgeon at Hopkins. So that is actually their device. That's actually in the medical history over at, on the uh, Madison campus over at Hopkins, Madison Street. And so the foot was, a, was the activated device, and they were heavy copper paddles. And so they would take dogs and they would actually put a A-line in them. And German shepherds have big femoral arteries, so they'd put a femoral A-line in them. They'd induce ventricular fibrillation and then they would working on ways to shock them out of it. So one of the experiments, they had the A-line in place. They, you know, they were getting ready, induced the VF. The guy took the paddles and he put them down, and the other Researcher said, oh, hold on, did you shock yet? And he said, no, I didn't shock him yet. And he said, oh, I saw saw an A-line tracing. I saw a waveform, what did you do? He said, well, the paddles were heavy, you know, I kind of banged them hard. And he said, well, do it again. Boom, pulse wave. Okay, let's keep doing that. Boom, 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 dropping these big copper paddles, and they were clearly compressing the dog's chest and they showed that they got an A-line tracing. So they quickly switched gears from actually working on the external defibrillator to actually chest compression. So then in the dog, you know, German shepherds are kind of barrel chested this way, so they were trying to say, well, was lateral compressions better than AP, PA compression, so forth. And they switched gears to that. And once they started showing that they could do it in animals, they quickly just started doing it to patients. Now their patients, what they typically were responding to was someone in the operating room who already had an established airway, was getting anesthesia and had a a VF arrest and so they would actually get closed chest compressions and then defibrillation. So these gentlemen then published a report in 1960 in JAMA talking about closed chest compressions. The thing that drew them both together so they were at Baltimore City Hospital they were at Hopkins who was that one person that I said was really interested in what was happening with you had a fire chief so I'm going to skip for a second because 1960 at the Maryland Medical Society meeting at Ocean City Maryland when they both went to present one about rescue breathing and one about closed chest compressions the baltimore fire chief said i think you guys should talk together because i think both of these would be a one method that we could do complete care for patients that were in cardiac arrest so the group talked it then came out with a educational film where it was the first time they used the the words ABC, the film The Pulse of Life, which was distributed to hospitals, medical schools, and then 1963, The American Heart, then named it CPR, which is what we call it now, in 1966. The first guidelines came out on doing this, so it was uh, obviously the first line of education was to educate the physicians and practicing people and then teaching others, so the only way that we had it, right, we didn't have uh, streaming videos and you know, we had to make a movie and then distribute it around to different hospitals for teaching purposes. So the last part, the fibrillation, we did talk about knowing that you could you could stimulate the heart of doves and make it contract So, people had a fascination with electricity. They knew that this this one gentleman, Abigold, could deliver electric shock to a bird and it could make it basically stop moving, drop down and then he could do another shock and it would get up and flutter around again. Now, he did not know that he was doing anything to the heart. He just knew that applying electricity could stun and then revive. It was only later a hundred years later that these two Italian researchers understood that actually they could induce ventricular fibrillation with electrical shock and then they could counter shock it and again I bring this point up because in early forms of American heart they talk about delivering a counter shock right that was a terminology we were and I always thought oh that meant we're countering the VF. Well, actually, the, the appropriate terminology is the first shock induced the VF, and they were countering that shock with another shock. But it persisted that a counter shock was somehow to help the VF. When in reality, we're delivering a shock. We're not delivering a counter shock. But that's just the, again remnants of of the terminology that had existed for over a hundred years. And then. Claude Beck, who was a cardiac surgeon, he's the one that coined the term hearts too good to die. So he recognized that people were either at the end stage of a long, ongoing dying process, or he had a very young, healthy person that was there for elective surgery, and that was who aggressive resuscitation was intended for. And he was trying to work on having a, a Um, an effective method of defibrillator and so this is an early internal defibrillator that he had developed and so then there was obviously as we talked about the race to develop a good external defibrillator because if you could do external compressions why would you want to open someone's chest just to apply paddles to do defibrillation? So Zoll actually was a uh, cardiologist and hence the name still for why Zoll is a one of the big competitors and there's Philips and Forgot LifePack and Zoll, which is a, still a modern-day very good competitor for for um, portable um, defibrillation devices. And so the initial devices you um, you plugged in to line current. It was alternating current. I had to have a transformer to boost it to high enough voltages. And then Lown, who was also a cardiologist. Basically, made the next development, which was direct current um, with the battery to charge the capacitor. was smaller, it was more portable, and that really led to what the current state of defibrillatory devices we have. Talk briefly about the ICU, and then we'll we'll wrap up. So, Florence Nightingale, uh, patron saint of nursing, she's the one that during the Crimean War. So, you know, I first started giving this talk a long time ago. I did, did not really exactly know where Crimea was. I had to look it up. Now, since since Putin's land grab, most people now say, oh, yeah, "I know where Crimea is." Yeah, okay. So it was a, it was a territory being fought over even even then, even 150 years ago. But Florence Nightingale said to her to the military officers in charge of the of the hospital there and she said why don't you let me take the most ill and injured patients and bring them all close by where the nursing station is that way we can keep a better eye on on them and that request was approved and they actually saw the mortality rate drop precipitously so when the war ended that was something that actually was recognized as a good idea so a lot of hospitals in Britain started to do that saying yeah the sickest patients we're just gonna keep them it wasn't a separate ward but you're gonna just keep them close Closest to the nurses' station, so they would have the most direct observation and the most direct care, and that seemed to help. And that led to basically what we would now start calling a a, a um, PACU. It was recognized that patients going the surgery was a very very risky time period so patients when they would return from surgery they would be kept in a separate holding area before returning to the general ward where they would be watched basically for the time period recovering from anesthesia since as we talked about you know they were not using uh, isoflame they were you know they were using ether uh, at this point so they would be watched most closely and then the development of the pediatric and neonatal um, ICUs when development of an infant incubator followed and then modern um, ICU was originally for post neurosurgical care Dandy who was one of the early uh, neurosurgeons again at Hopkins doing open craniotomies wanted to have his patients all in one area where the nursing staff could watch them closely, and they were familiar with that type of care. And so that was recognized as one of the early versions of a of a surgical ICU. And then, 1953 in uh, Denmark, there were so many patients with respiratory failure due to polio that they had to change from, originally they were all using negative pressure ventilators, they were using drinker ventilators, and they clearly would not have had enough ventilators for all of these patients. So this is really in Western medicine where we switched from negative pressure to positive pressure ventilation because we just could not accommodate enough patients with negative pressure ventilators. So these patients would get tracheostomies and would get banged, in rotating shifts by the medical students for a this was for a prolonged time period until they actually got through this polio epidemic um, and that was also the impetus for the development of of positive pressure ventilators because obviously people couldn't stay there 8 hours as a shift doing doing bagging of these patients and then Peter Sephora, the same person for mouth to mouth breathing rescue breathing opened Uh, the first ICU that had 24-hour physician coverage. So now we're more to the modern times and these patients are sick, they need to be in one area, they need to have good nursing level care, they need to have constant physicians at the bedside available. So that was the time period that they had uh, physicians, not just that would round, but that would be there and present. And then, and more also next, uh, next decade, for more patients receiving uh, cardiac, cardiac surgery and um, revascularization. Uh, if you're admitted for an MI, your risk of death would be high if you just weren't near that defibrillator, right? The defibrillators, they were getting better, but they were still large and not so portable. So instead of having patients around different places when they were admitted for their MI or after their cardiac surgery, they were all put in one area so that they would all be around that defibrillator. It was a little different of an idea, but it still meant that they had to be clustered, and so then the nursing care would be more centralized with experienced nurses. And then we talked then about surgical ICUs, cardiac ICUs, and so really the first trauma ICU or dedicated hospital for trauma um, was was also here at R. Adams Cali. And that's an early photo of him with some of his early uh, early critical care fellows. So for a summary. It's been a long time that people have recognized that there's sudden death or near-death events and have had a uh, progression towards trying to do something about it. I think it's a wrong idea to say, I know it's tempting to say, oh, now that the 2015 guidelines came out, so now we know how to do it, right? Now we are set, you know. Five years ago, well, we were such buffoons, you know, but now we know, right? So when we look back on other people, it's, again, we... we people will be looking back at us and saying, what on earth were we doing, right? I mean, even now, again, I've I've only been doing this for, you know, 15, 20 years, but I can say, okay, you know, escalating doses of that be one milligram, three milligrams, you know, six milligrams, you know, of course we don't do that anymore. But I used to feel betrayed, right, when you were a resident, and then the new guidelines would come out and you would be like, what do you mean, no stacked shocks? I mean, what are you talking about? I have to, uh, oh, I can't stop, you know, I, I can't stop doing CPI for prolonged time periods. And it makes you think like they're just trying to make it more difficult on you. And, of course, we're just trying to get better. And it's difficult to do resuscitation science because it's a hard population to study. It's a hard population to show benefits on but it's a very important thing. So I always end this spiel by saying, if you're ever able to be involved in any um, any research on, on cardiac resuscitation, um, try to do so, because the only way that we're going to get better by it is, is by studying it closely. But I also think it helps to know our past as, as we move forward. And I'll finish with a couple quotes to Nobel uh, Laureates here, Andre Gidei, believe those who are seeking the truth, doubt those who find it. So uh, this idea that you never, I forgot who said this part, you, you never know as much about something as when you don't know. But as soon as you know, forget it. You know, that's the idea, right? So if you think you know about it, then that's, you know, you no longer are, cur- are curious and continue to investigate. So, as well as everything that has been said before, but since nobody listens, we have to keep going over again. And that is true, since we've seen that we've rediscovered things time and time again. And then a couple nice sayings from Churchill is once in a while you'll stumble upon the truth but most of us manage to pick ourselves up and hurry along as if nothing had happened. And so I think the important thing there is to just keep an open mind and open eyes because sometimes you will see something that will seem out of of the place or a little bit curious to you and remember that and think about it because it may be that you have discovered something that's very important and not just to write it off, you know. If, uh, if Fleming, when, when his lab tech brought him the dishes, you know, and he said, what is you what did you grow there? Get rid of those dishes, right? And threw them out instead of saying, hey, what, what's happening here, right? We wouldn't have discovered penicillin when we did. So sometimes just having an open mind is really important. And then the next one, I actually, I, I say all the time, however beautiful the strategy, you should occasionally look at the results. So a great plan that's killing the patient Um, you know, you can't just stand around and marvel at how great of a plan you made, so obviously you need to reassess. And so I think that's clearly what we've been doing throughout time and and should continue to do. All right, thanks again for inviting me to be here, and uh, hopefully there was some, some discussion and comments about it.